0: Welcome to the podcast for the 21st Annual First Conference in Kyoto, Japan, June 28th through July 3rd, 2009. The Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams is a global nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing together computer security instant response teams. I'm your host, Martin McKay, and I'll be bringing you weekly interviews highlighting the people who make the first conference possible, the leading experts in the C-Cert field who will be presenting, and the topics that will be covered. The theme for the 2009 conference is Aftermath. Crafts and Lessons of Incident Recovery. The conference covers advanced topics in security incident prevention, detection, and response, the latest advances in computer and network security tools, and opportunities to share views, experiences, and resolutions in the computer security incident response field. For more information on the conference, please visit conference.first.org. And now please join me for this week's interview in progress. I'm here today talking to Jeff Kroom, the executive IT security architect at IBM and uh, also a member of the Tivoli security team and the author of Inside Internet Security, What Hackers Don't Want You to Know. And he's going to be giving a talk at first called More of What the Hackers Don't Want You to Know. Uh, Jeff, is there a lot that the hackers don't want us to know?
1: Oh, there's an awful lot, Martin. Uh, It's good talking with you. Um, I, I, in fact, this this talk is really kind of a follow-up to the book. When I when I created the book, uh, and it's now been some years ago, I tried to identify what I thought were some of the classic trends that were recurring in IT security and what hackers were doing so that we didn't just kind of chase our tails with every new, uh, you know, here's the threat du jour kind of scenario. So I was looking for what were the, the classic things that keep recurring over and over again, and I think I got most of those. But this talk is basically um, what I would do if I were doing a second edition of the book. Some additional things, many of them are just kind of variations on a theme that were already identified, but now showing it in the context of some of the, the newer technologies that people are particularly focused on these days.
0: Well, what the hackers are doing, and, and the technology has changed for what they're doing, but have the actual crimes changed all that much in the last last few years?
1: The crimes really haven't. If you think about it, uh, some people would argue that there is a shift in emphasis in some cases, where, for instance, it used to be that viruses, uh, tended to be and other malware tended to be uh, the purview of of kids that were just trying to make a name for themselves, and now that's turned into more of a money-making opportunity, uh, where people are taking over machines and creating botnets, using them to force out phishing attacks and other things like that. Uh, and spam. So there's more of a monetary incentive now these days than there was when I was writing the book. But uh, some of the basic ways that that systems get broken into have really not changed that much. If you, uh, even though the precise details of the attack may change, uh, the underlying causes of what caused a system to be vulnerable in the first place really have not
0: you know, I, I look at this and why haven't we learned from these lessons? Why haven't we made the changes necessary to make it so that we can protect against these these uh, vulnerabilities and, and that we've known about for years?
1: That really is the question, isn't it? Um, I think about a lot of times the the movie Groundhog Day, where if you haven't seen that, they, you know, the main character keeps waking up and repeating the same day. It just happens to be Groundhog Day in the movie. And uh, it's just this, this sort of uh, endless repeating strain of the exact same thing happening over and over and over again. And for people who maybe don't follow IT security, they pick up a newspaper or a trade magazine or whatever, and they hear about some new threat, some new attack, and they think, oh, this is really new and novel. Uh, if for people who've been following this for a while, it's Groundhog Day. It's just watching the same thing happen again and again and again. And um, my, my best effort, uh, along with everyone else's, I hope will be to to try to identify what are the underlying root causes and let's not make those same mistakes again. And then that way, uh, when new technologies come out, we know how to think about security the right way as opposed to just focusing on the new technology and not thinking about the security ramifications.
0: Well, what are some of those underlying causes? I mean, what what do we need to address to, to make Groundhog Day go away?
1: Uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of different things. I would think one of the most important ones is really goes to how you think about security and how you think about uh, designing systems if you're on that side of, of, uh, of the equation. Then how users think about systems and use systems. There's a lot of work to do there. But being able to look at, at a system critically and think about... Um, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm a security architect, and I work with a lot of other people who are uh, software architects or IT architects of different types who maybe don't focus on security. And they will tend to design systems and think about the normal case processing. They'll think about how the system is supposed to work. Then they don't spend nearly as much time thinking about how the system might fail. And my job, in many cases, is to come in and, and work with people and make them think about how this thing might fail so in other words once you finish designing a system you need to now take that hat off as a designer and put on the hat of a hacker and at least intellectually go through the exercise of figuring out how would I break this system if that's what I wanted to do and then start shoring up where those different areas are and if you're a user of new technology somebody comes out with some new uh, gee whiz uh, device or software or some other standard Uh, You look at what can this thing do for me, but then before you completely jump in uh, head first, put on the hacker's hat for a minute and say, how would I abuse this technology? And then think about not doing that, but think about how would you protect yourself? How much of this technology should you expose yourself to? Or what kind of precautions should you take if you're going to take those risks?
0: Well, wasn't that part of the original meaning of hacker before the press gave it such a negative connotations, somebody who looked at the edge cases for any technology and just tried to make it do something, something it wasn't originally meant to do?
1: Exactly. That was uh, one of the original uses of the term. It's kind of, other than people who are in the industry, um, that's that's not the predominant use of the term, but it's, it actually, as you say, is uh, where the term came from. But if you were to ask you know, 100 people on the street, would they like a hacker working on their system? I guarantee you at least 99 of them would say no. So the common usage in the vernacular has become a hacker is a bad guy trying to break into your system. But but you're right. Hackers, whether they're good or bad, are trying to push the envelope. Um, and what you do with that, once you, you push that envelope, uh, really there's the ethical challenge that determines whether you're doing good work or bad work.
0: Well, how how has the the hacker community changed, not, not just the, the black hats, but the white hat. How, how has that community changed over the last decade?
1: I think there's been a fair bit more maturity in, in both sides. Um, although I can speak more to the white hat side, since that's the side I live in, but I think, um, a lot of the debates that, that we used to have, it really raged about, uh, whether, uh, vulnerability should be published to the world uh, immediately or whether there should be some level of restraint and withholding information, uh, we still have an uneasy tension on this kind of full disclosure debate. But I think there is less tension on that than there was, say, 10 years ago, where you had people that seemed to be very polarized on, if I find a, a vulnerability, I need to tell the whole world. That will make the world safe. Uh, but then again, other people you know, would say, no, you need to keep that secret so other people can't exploit it. And the truth is, there is a happy medium somewhere in between. And I think there's a little more maturity in the white hat side these days, and maybe even in the gray hat side, those guys in the in-between area, to exercise a little more restraint there. So that's one area that I think has improved at least a little.
0: So where where do you sit on that whole debate of full disclosure, no disclosure, responsible disclosure?
1: Um, I would say, you know, responsible disclosure certainly sounds like a reasonable way to go. In other words, you, um, I think, uh, uh, keeping system details secret is not the best way to ensure security. That's the sort of uh, security through obsc- uh, obscurity model. You know, if we if we keep the information secret, then that keeps the system se- uh, secure. And in time, that might work for a short periods of time, but over time, that will ultimately probably fail in most cases if a system has a big enough bullseye on it then someone will find a way to break into it so i do think we need to make the information available i think it needs to be done responsibly in other words it doesn't do any good to uh, to say oh guess what you know the, the forest uh... is really dry right now i can prove that it could burn down by burning it down that's not particularly helpful um... if you find that there's an issue, you find a vulnerability, you report it to the right people, give them a fair opportunity to fix it, then then if there is no response, then maybe you use public pressure uh, of one form or another to bring that to bear, but that's a uh, it's a debatable point to be fair.
0: Well, how do we use this sort of information to help with instant response or or being proactive? I mean, how how do we take the knowledge that of what the hackers don't want us to know and turn that around and, and ma- use it to make our systems more secure.
1: I think it goes back to uh, looking at the classic stuff again. I'm gonna sound like a broken record but I, I I think there is too much focus on when a new technology comes out we focus on the bells and whistles and not what the potential downside is. Now I'm not someone who says we shouldn't use new technologies when they come out. I love that stuff. I'm a technologist at heart so uh, the g whiz stuff always gets to me. But I think we need to be more cautious in the way we deploy it. Don't just immediately roll it out. For instance, um, I'll, I'll do some, some talking in the, the conference about things like Web 2.0 and uh, Bluetooth and RFID and biometrics. Uh, these are all really good technologies deployed in the right context. They can do some great things deployed in the wrong context, uh, they can do some really awful things or create some vulnerabilities for us. Uh, I think the the first people who are responsible for responding to incidents need to be ahead of the curve. They need to understand what these new technologies are and know what some of the vulnerabilities are so they're not caught completely unaware. And my personal opinion is is that uh, IT security people, the old guard of IT security, uh, was really too many of them were experts at saying no whatever an individual asked you know can we install this application can we have this capability can we connect to this network the i t security guys were always well equipped to tell you why that was too dangerous and you should never do it and we won't allow you to do it It's against security policy so what that does is that forces end-users and lines of business people, other people who need to get a job done, uh, they just go around uh, the, and violate the security policy and find their own worse, more insecure way of doing it. So I think uh, the IT security groups are doing a better job and need to continue to focus on staying up with what the new technologies are, realizing that they may not embrace all of them initially because of the weaknesses that are there, but find a way to make this whole thing work, and they will do a whole lot better than if they just say, no, it's not allowed. And uh, and then what they do is they just drive it underground, and then they end up with a more insecure implementation than they would have if they had allowed themselves to stay in the conversation.
0: I have to agree with you. I think that one of the biggest changes I've seen in, in Internet security and, and IT in the last decade is that we as security professionals are learning to um, – be a lot more aware of business needs and how to tell people, yes, you can do it, but here's a secure way to do it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I remember a company, for instance, back when the internet was young, basically told employees you can't have internet access. It's too risky. So by, by saying that uh, the, and making that part of the security policy, they took themselves out of the conversation with their end users, who now knew they couldn't ask the question because the answer was no. So what did the end users do? Well, they used uh, dial-up modems and connected to the internet anyway. And since they were left to their own devices, some of those had systems that were configured where their their machine was essentially a router uh, that was connecting the the intranet, the internal network, to the outside internet and they didn't have a firewall on that. This was before the days of personal firewalls on machines. So by saying no, what the security people had done, it actually created a more insecure situation where people were now forced to poke insecure holes in the network boundary, uh, rather than give them a more secure way to to access the internet. Of course, now I think most companies have got it on that, but there are still other areas where they don't.
0: Well, you've mentioned education, and and uh, do you really think that over the last ten years that we've we've managed to actually educate end users at all, and and make them realize that some of these things they're doing online are dangerous?
1: Yes and no. Uh, there's there's some areas where you can certainly show that, that people are a little more savvy than they used to be. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when I start thinking about end users, I think not necessarily about IT professionals or even, the, even business professionals, but just, you know, family members and friends who are not even in the industry at all. Um, are they more savvy to uh, certain spam and phishing attacks now than they were, say, a few years ago, and I think they are. Are they savvy enough? Not nearly. So I think there is some uh, progress that's been made there, but there there's ample evidence to show that we'll never be able to educate people enough, uh, especially when it comes to individual technologies, because that is an always evolving game. So that's why I get back to the We have to teach people how to think about security, how to think critically about things without being overly negative. That's the balance point. The IT security guys knew uh, and have known how systems get broken into, but when they preach, you know, everything is dangerous and the sky is falling, they again remove themselves from the conversation. If they can can position that in a way that they say, we're going to help you do the right thing, and we're going to help steer you clear of the more dangerous areas and we're going to find a a pragmatic way of bringing this stuff in, then they allow themselves to stay in the conversation, have more influence, and and educate users better. So I I think we've still got a lot of work to go in the user education area. And as people have pointed out, there's no such thing as a firewall for the human mind. So we'll never just be able to install the right behaviors into people and they'll, they'll do the right thing every time. But... I think we can do better.
0: Well, how about the other end of the equation? How about the developers? Are, are you seeing developers becoming more and more aware of security and the concerns they need to have about security? Or is are we making enough, enough efforts for education for developers and, and uh, upcoming IT professionals?
1: It's an interesting question because it depends on what your historical perspective, how long uh, and broad a view you take on that, I think, as to where you would come out. If you look at... You know, what's happened, I think, in the last, say, 10 years, then I think it, there is more focus on security, at least in some cases. You know, we've seen some areas that used to be uh, just horribly bad for security where at least there's more awareness that people have to do a better job. Now, they're not necessarily always doing the perfect job, but I think there's more awareness of it. Now, if you were to, to go back and stretch the horizon more than 10 years and go back a couple of decades, then compared Comparing us now to what uh, we were a couple of decades ago, I think we're not doing as good a job. Um, one of the things that was interesting about the, you know, the, the mainframe era was that it was a very controlled environment, and the idea of a controlled computing environment with address spaces and so forth and all the security mechanisms, locking memory, and, and looking for all these kinds of, uh, of issues was just you know, core to the way you develop software. Uh, You you took more time, things uh, developed on a slower pace, and there was a lot more um, introspection and a lot more, you know, looking code design, code reviews, and that sort of stuff. So I think that compared to those days, we don't do as good a job, but then again, the expectation today is that we're going to turn out code in a faster uh, cycle than we've ever done in the past, and I don't see that changing. So... It's not like we can turn the, the clock back and go back to the way we used to do it. We just need to borrow some of those lessons. Uh, for instance, buffer overflows. Uh, we, I, I wonder if maybe the first buffer overflow might have been documented as a, as a cave drawing somewhere back with Og and Ugg you know, thousands of years ago. It's been around that long, and we're still doing it. Uh, we, we have figured out how to perfect it almost, it seems, but we just can't eradicate it.
0: Well, that's one of the, the interesting things is that, it, as opposed to twenty years ago when people were just happy to be able to do any computing, now it's almost considered a right. And if you try and limit people in any way, a lot of them get upset.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And and there's uh, there's a lot of arguments about how things should be done and who should be doing it. And the reality is is that most people are not trained in security. I know when I went through you know, my education you know computer science degree uh, what seems like a million years ago there was not one word mentioned on IT security and how and secure programming practices never came up in the full four years um, so I, I think there is at least now in some of the college curriculum uh, there is some discussion of this more so certainly than there was back when I was in school and uh, and I know that because I'm out talking at universities, you know, on, on somewhat regular basis and trying to get that message out. So, and I know other people are doing it as well. So there is, again, some room for hope, but there is an awful lot of work to be done.
0: What's been the uh, most surprising change to you in the last last few years about how hackers are, are doing what they're doing and, and what security is doing?
1: Uh, interesting question. I'm not sure that that much of it, if you've been at this for a pretty long while, that much of it is terribly surprising. Uh, only, other than it caught me off guard, and I should have known it already. Um, I, I think a lot of the of the trends that people seem to be, you know, surprised at, actually were very predictable. Um, I think things like like the idea that that uh, high-speed, always-on broadband connections was going to increase the risk. Some people seem surprised at that, but that was as predictable as the sun coming up in the morning. Um, the fact that uh, computing power is being pushed out of and has been pushed out uh, and dispersed, you know, where it once was the purview of the glass house and now it sits in people's back pockets you know, in the form of mobile phones and other devices that have more computing power than used to be in a, an entire machine room back in the old days, um, I, think, I think those kind of things um, seem to catch people off guard that, oh, my goodness, this has created a real risk for us, hasn't it? But it shouldn't have been surprising to anybody. If we, if we could have miniaturized the mainframes 25 years ago and put them in people's pockets, uh, everyone would have broken out in hives over the, uh, the idea of what kind of a risk they were exposing themselves to. Now we do it all the time and don't quite think about it, and then it seems to catch us off guard but it shouldn't.
0: Well, now for a trick question for you. How do you think uh, cloud computing is going to change this whole equation?
1: I think it will do what almost every new technology does for us, and that's create new... You can look at it on the positive or the the negative, you know, the the half-full glass or the half-empty glass. On the positive side, it creates new opportunities for security people. And uh, that's something, if you're in the IT security space, you realize we've never had a shortage of because there's always some new technology that will come out and people haven't thought about the security aspects of it fully. I think cloud compu- computing is just another example. It's just the latest uh, turn of the crank there. I think cloud computing is good. Um, I I think there's a lot of advantages to it. I think we won't realize those advantages if we're not careful about how we handle the security because what happening what's happening now is we're potentially intermixing all kinds of, of traffic, all kinds of data, all kinds of processing power in, in areas that used to be isolated. And from a classical security view, if you're wanting to secure something, you want it isolated. And the cloud goes against that level of isolation. and says we're going to have to work in a less isolated, uh, more, you know, everything all you know, gloms together. So that means we've got to create isolation at different layers. We can't rely on it just, for instance, uh, at, a, at a firewall level or network level or machine level. Uh, we're not going to be able to turn the crank back even further, uh, rely on air gaps to provide the level of isolation that we want. Uh, we're going to have to provide the data protection in the data itself and and make sure that, uh, that that's carried through all the way and implemented well. So it creates new challenges. I'm... I think it's all doable uh, with enough uh, hard work and enough attention to detail. But it is something that I look at and say, let's do this carefully and let's make sure we get it right.
0: Well, pull out your crystal ball for a second and and what do you think we're going to be seeing change over the next five years or 10 years or, or realistically, maybe it's only one year that we can look forward
1: yeah, I think the, the crystal balls get hazy after about two or three weeks, honestly, these days, the way things change. I think there are some kind of inevitable trends that we'll continue to see. I think from a, a computing perspective, we're going to continue to see more and more of what I refer to as the ubiquitous enterprise, this, this idea that I mentioned earlier that the, the centralized computing power gets pushed out into people's pockets, and it becomes more and more pervasive. Uh, everywhere you go, that's where the IT enterprise is. Um, obviously, more and more wireless connectivity, which means more and more um, every time we expose something uh, to a wireless environment as opposed to a wired environment, there's always the potential for other types of attacks that we didn't used to have. Uh, there's the ability to, uh, to sniff traffic. Uh, obviously, if the encryption is not good, then there's an issue. Uh, there's an ability potentially to insert yourself into that network easier to do if you do it over a, over a wireless environment than in a wired environment. And again, we're just going to see more and more critical data pushed out into less and less secure devices. Some of the mobile phones, um, smartphones and things like that, that have all of this application data in them don't necessarily have the kind of security lockdowns that they need. So I expect we're going to see more. I wrote about this back in the book uh all the way back in 2000, when I don't think a lot of people were still thinking about this as a big threat, but the idea of viruses that will run on on mobile devices um, and the threats that will go there, hackers are going to go wherever the the biggest bullseyes are. And bullseyes, you know, in in the more recent past, the biggest bullseye has been on Windows, so that's where they attack most. Uh, as we see um, Apple and, and Mac OS rising in importance, we're also, not surprisingly, seeing more and more vulnerabilities. Uh, where, as we're seeing with, with other systems, Linux and others, all of these have potential uh, advantages to us, but none of them are perfect. Open source helps in some cases. Open source is not a panacea um, as, that makes things inherently more secure by its very nature of being open source. Um so I think there are some sort of misconceptions out there that will drive some level of insecurities, but the overall trend is going to be to uh, more and more pervasive computing, uh, and therefore it's going to be more and more challenging as we start mixing everything up and making everything easily accessible. That's going to be the challenge for the IT security folks because uh, <coughs> excuse me, you can almost imagine a continuum where on one extreme you've got accessibility and usability and on the other extreme, total security. So there's always going to be this uneasy tension where we make the most accessible system, if, if that's what we're optimizing on, then we may not make it the most secure system, and vice versa. So it would be most accessible if I didn't have to put a lock on my front door, but it wouldn't be very secure. And if I put six locks on my door, it would be very secure, but it would be really inconvenient for me to get into so we know that that those battles often get lost, uh, the security versus convenience. So we've got to be real careful in how we we draw our lines in the sand.
0: I, I think it's it's funny how nowadays we can we have the the phones and we have the netbooks and we have have these systems that are so portable that have two or three times the computing power that we had on on the best laptops ten years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And that trend is going to do nothing but continue. Uh, and the the line's being blurred between what is a company IT resource and what's an individual's IT resource. Uh, if someone buys a, a phone and then they need email access, well, then that's uh, is that a company asset or is that a, a personal asset? Well, it depends on who bought it. But then, again, there are other kinds of conditions that, that companies will have. And, again, this is one of those it, a great example here, I think, again, of how IT security can get out in front of this and help users do a more secure job or they can lag behind and make the whole thing worse. Uh, I'll give you an example here. Uh, I won't even mention the the company involved or the type of phone or whatever, but uh, the company in this particular example told the employees this particular model of phone is not secure enough for us to expose our corporate email on, so we're just not going to allow it. So what does the user do? They go to their email account. They forward all their email to a public email service. And I'll give examples like a Gmail, Yahoo Mail, something like that. And then they're able to pick all of that up on their phone. Now, you tell me which is worse. Uh, For the company to get behind and say, okay, the phone is really not all that secure, but we can make it a little better if you work with us versus, no, you can't do it, so the user just forwards it all to a public email service. Uh, I think the former is a better way to approach it.
0: Yeah, if we don't let them do it securely, they're going to find a way to do it anyways, and it's going to be a lot less insecure, or A lot more insecure.
1: Absolutely right. Uh, that would be my primary message to the IT security people is to you know, not bury your head in the sand on this. Now, that doesn't mean we have to accept every single new technology, a new G whiz thing that comes out. Some of them aren't worth the risk, uh, but it all comes back to that risk discussion, and and trying to minimize the risks in the cases where we realize we can't eliminate them.
0: Jeff, anything, uh, anything else I, I should ask you about that I haven't?
1: Oh, no, I don't think so. I'm looking forward to the conference. Uh, looking forward to seeing the folks over in, uh, Kyoto and, um, hope everybody will come attend the session and ask lots of good questions.
0: Well, Jeff, I, I look forward to meeting you face to face in Kyoto and, uh, your, your talk is going to be more of what ha- the hackers don't want you to know. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the 21st Annual First Conference in Kyoto, Japan, June 28th through July 3rd, 2009. For more information, please visit conference.first.org. I'm your host, Martin McKay, and I'll be bringing you more interviews from the speakers and organizers of the first conference, as well as interviews live from the conference itself. You can also listen to my weekly podcast at netsecpodcast.com and read my blog at www.mckeay.net.